0: You're listening to the Hub City Church Podcast. To learn more about Hub City Church, including our gathering times, you can check out our website at albanyhubcity.com. You guys are getting uh, in the murdery sex. You're getting the hip-hop sermon today, so just hang. We're in the middle of a series where we're walking through the Decalogue, the Ten Words, what we most commonly call the Ten Commandments, and we're approaching today... Um, These two that we're putting together. Um, Never put these two things together, okay? But we are today, um, and you'll see why there's a purpose for it. Um, But let me pray, and we'll get back on track here. Father, once again, we just want to come before you and recognize that this is your eternal word that is speaking, guided uh, with the gift of the Holy Spirit, so that we as your people can hear the truth of your gospel today, and that it may work the way that it works in our hearts and our lives and our minds. God, that it would quicken our spirits, that it would divide the things that are not to be a part of us from the things that you call us to be. Father, I pray that your word would go forth today. Your gospel truth would hit our hearts today. We would change and transform because of it. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, if you grew up in the 80s, which as I stand up here and Look out! I recognize most of you didn't. There's a few of us, right? Stick your hands up if you're an '80s kid. Yeah, that's right. Um, and which, by the way, I'm just uh, like I'm sorry, not sorry that most most of my cultural references are for there, are from the '80s. Uh, let me let me just say this: like, if you if you're under the age of like 35, if all of you could collectively just do the work, go back and study the '80s. Like, I can't catch up on your guys's. I'm just one person. There's no way that I can learn all of like the millennial cultural references, but you guys together could pull together and come up and understand this. But listen, if you grew up in the 80s, there was this thing. I don't even know if it still happens. I don't even know if network television is a thing, but there were these things like daytime talk shows, right? Now, some of them were like fairly legit in their content, but then there was like this thread of them People like, let's pull it up here, like Jerry Springer. I don't even know if Jerry's still on the air. I don't even know if he's still alive. Maury Povich, Montel Williams. And and here's the premise for these shows. Anybody tune into these shows? The premise was this. They would would pull on a cast of characters as guests. And usually these cast of characters found themselves in, like, the worst situations that life, you could find yourself in life, right? I mean, I don't, I'm not even going to go through the laundry list of, like, kind of debased activity that some of the guests were involved with. But I remember like watching some of them back in the day, and I remember just kind of going like, what kind of train wreck am I watching right now? Why can't I turn it off? I cannot believe that people are actually into this or do this or whatever. And I would always think this, and if you've seen this show, you probably it's probably the same reason that it attracts you, because you would watch this circus show unfold before your eyes, right? And I would always think this, well, at least I haven't done that, right? Now, keep that in mind, because as we approach these last six commandments, they're going to confront us. It's going to make us uncomfortable. Like the things that we're going to talk about um, cut against the grain of the cultural norm in a lot of ways. But these last six commandments, they're going to force us to evaluate how we respond to the image of God in our fellow humans, right? And they serve then as a stark warning that any mistreatment of our fellow image bearers comes really from this dark place in us. It comes from, in the story, it comes from like Egypt, right? A place that fosters this disturbing and underlying desire to denigrate actually God Himself. So these commands, they're gonna exhort us to love our image-bearing neighbors from our overflowing love of God. By their very nature, these last statements are not meant to be validating statements. They're not meant to like boost our confidence that we're doing just fine, despite our typical response to them, which is most often, well, at least I haven't done that. Like, let's look at them real quick, back to back, right? Verse, verse 13 in, in Exodus 20. The first one is this. You shall not murder, right? Which most of us in this room can probably boldly say with confidence that we have not murdered anyone, right? I hope. Is that true? Okay, good. There's a baseline, but, but I think we need to go a little bit deeper than just like the surface understanding of that because this command is so short, it's so brief, it contains no promises, it wields no warnings. There's really, if you look at it at face value, like not much to exposit here. Hey, just don't murder people, right? At least I haven't done that. Well, just a short exclamation is all this is. It's very concise. It's very succinct. You shall not murder. It's actually just only two words in the Hebrew. Um, this word lo and then ratzak. So it's not murder. That's it. The command is really just not murder. That's it. Um, it we we add things like thou shall not, right? But, but listen to this. When a point is like just stupidly obvious, right? Like it really does, you don't need to be long-winded in your explanation. You don't need to be a long-winded blowhard, which is about what I'm about to do anyways as we walk through this because there's so much more than just what's on the surface, right? Because if you just look at it and take it for what it says, the issue um, that this command highlights appears both obvious and I would hope Easily avoidable to most of us, right? Because what is more straightforward than being a not murderer, right? But, but just because these two commands, also the one to not commit adultery, are so easy to understand, fairly easy to obey, we should not look to these things and overlook what God's true intentions are. What is he really trying to get at this? Is he trying to say merely don't do this action or is there something lying deeper, beneath the surface that leads us to those actions. And so today, here's what we got to do. We got to go on a pretty long journey, okay? We're going to start at Sinai, but then we're going to go back to the garden, and then we're going to take a detour at Jesus' like most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, which he talks about this. We're actually going to end up in the new Jerusalem. And so we've got a lot of ground to cover so we can fully understand what is beneath the surface of these two like really obvious commands, right? Because when we dig deeper, what we begin to understand is while they're easy to understand, easy to obey, that God has a deeper intention for us here because it's not just the pace that changes here in these commands, these last commands. It's also the focus. It shifts in the last command's to, from like honoring like one another's fellow image bearers to our brothers and sisters, our neighbors. And, and the sixth command begins with one of the most heinous acts we could perpetrate against our fellow image bearers. Scripture actually records the earliest violation of this command. And it takes place all the way back in human history in the garden. The story of Cain and Abel could not be more tragic. Not long after Adam and Eve are cast from the garden, clinging to the promise from God of this deliverer that he will send through them, Eve gives birth to Cain. And and look at how she responds. It's back in Genesis 4.1. Now, Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Now, let's make some sense of that, because her reaction is based on what? Well, it's based on this particular promise that, that Yahweh delivers to them, to Adam and Eve. As they're, as they're, they're excommunicated from the garden, God also delivers a, a grace-filled promise that he will send one day this Messiah who will crush the head of the serpent, right? And so she's thinking, like, listen, this is promise fulfilled. God said he would send somebody through me, right? This baby is going to be the serpent head crusher, which is an awesome name for a metal band, by the way. Um, And it's easy for us to see the irony here, right? Because what we know is that Cain is not the Messiah. He's a murderer. Adam and Eve, she thinks her firstborn will be like the Messiah, the reality, her firstborn will be the first human to murder, taking the life of his brother, his fellow image bearer. So remember the story. Cain becomes enraged that his brother Abel has received God's blessing and favor, and God warns Cain in Genesis 4, 6, and 7. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Lock into that word. It's such a key thing to unlocking all of this, right? Right? And then if you fast forward, like you can see the arc of it if you know the Sermon on the Mount. Like, like why are you angry? And why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. So Cain hears this warning, but what we know is he doesn't heed it. Right, The temptation to lash out, not control his anger, it consumes him. And ultimately, what we see is that it's not so much that his anger is on, it's kind of displaced onto Abel, but his anger is actually rooted and founds itself more directed at God. But the problem is, he can't reach God right he's gonna swing and miss every time he reaches for god he can't kill god so he does the unthinkable and he shifts his aim towards his brother the closest thing that he could get to what to god's image his fellow image bearer he lures abel into a field and he murders his brother when god asks him this question hey where's your brother cain deflects right with his own question he says well in genesis 4 9 am i my brother's keeper so that question Am I my brother's keeper is so key because it's going to actually begin to find its fulfillment and answer in these last six commands. Church, are you your brother's keeper, right? That question is so important. So, so what we can learn from the first recorded case of murder is... Can we really say this? Can you really say, when you look at the story, you look how God confronts Cain in his anger, can you really say, well, at least I haven't done that? Because you'd have to step back and you'd have to say, like, hey, listen, I've never been angry at someone. Is that true of you? You've never been angry at someone. So you can see how this thing starts to, like, kind of unravel if you think it's just about murder. Listen, don't murder people but God's going to get at something much deeper here for us, right? And so as we examine the story, as we go deeper with it, we discover that his path to becoming a murderer, it didn't just simply start with like planning and plotting the perfect crime, right? It began with this far more pervasive sin. It began with him being angry, right? Which begs this question, is anger a sin? Well, anger is an emotion that every human feels. An emotion is just a natural response To a circumstance right it's a negative emotion but it's an emotion so anger is our natural response i think to this to the to the violation of our wills like when what we want to choose when where we want to go when that is violated when we don't get what we want we get angry right there's such a there's there is such a thing as like a righteous anger A righteous anger, its aim is to defend God's holiness and his glory. Jesus demonstrates a righteous anger in the gospels, but so emotions are in and of themselves, like they're they're not sinful necessarily, but they can quickly progress to being sinful if we do not manage them properly, right? So Genesis 4 does not say that Cain's anger was sinful. It doesn't say that anywhere. God just says, why are you angry, right? Cain's problem was not just mere anger but anger nursed and indulged right satiated in the act of taking his brother's life so it's unchecked anger um or it's anger that actually like kind of gets put into this like plant and nurtured right nurtured sinfully so so we can also guess that his anger was sinful because of jesus's words about the sixth word in the sermon on the mount jesus presses his audience towards this like ever expanding expanding obedience in the sermon on the mount and jesus has in mind the entirety of the law right the the whole mosaic law But most specifically, he certainly is processing like the 10 words here. He's thinking in light of these 10 words when he's delivering the Sermon on the Mount. And so starting with the sixth word in particular in Matthew 5, 21 and 22, Jesus says this. He says, you have heard that it was said to those of old you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So notice that Jesus doesn't Overturn the command not to murder here, right? He does do this. He challenges our constant attempts at doing like just the bare minimum. Right? Like we love to do the bare minimum. Like, hey, does this meet it? Does this qualify for it? Am I good here? And as long as I don't have to put any more effort forward than this, right? So he confronts this idea that as long as I don't commit the physical act of murder, I've fulfilled the law. He's challenging us to something deeper here, right? Jesus demands and demonstrates for us a better way. He's urging his disciples to look beyond the letter of the law. He wants his audience to identify the inward sin, right? Now, this is the people that he's speaking to that were meant to be living under the ethic of the Decalogue, or the Ten Words. They would have known it. They would have committed it to memory. They would have attempted to live it out. And he's he's, he's proclaiming to this audience, like, he wants them to identify, really, the inward sin that leads to murder, and like what makes it happen in the first place. And, and by pointing to anger as its origin, he leaves no room for any of us to like just simply check the box next to the sixth commandment. Like I haven't murdered anybody. I'm living it out. Jesus is issuing a warning to us here. We have to examine in our hearts. How sin progresses in our life, how it it starts with temptation, like James talks about it. But then being led into that temptation, which, which, by the way, just real quick, being tempted isn't sinning right? Like, that's how James talks about it. It's like, you can be tempted. It's only when you give thought to that, right? When you stew on that, when you nurture it in this environment of a sinful attitude and heart, does it turn into this sinful action? And Jesus is saying, like, you've got to do that same thing here. He's issuing this warning, like, check the progression of it. A negative emotion can lead to, like, harmful thinking if you stew on it, to harmful speech, to harmful actions, and so the exclamation, like, it it gets lost on us, because you're, like, you're reading through this, and you're, like, you're reading Jesus's words to this audience, and at the end, he's, like, and whoever says you fool, right, which is, we're, like, whatever, like, I mean, honestly, how many of you have called someone that you love, like, a bit foolish, right, you're, like, yeah, that's foolish, right, now, what gets lost on us is the word that he actually uses there it's much deeper than that right he's challenging his audience here to understand something far deeper because the word you fool is this word raka right it would get bleeped out like if i was to if it had the same connotations like i wouldn't feel comfortable saying it in front of you right it gets lost on us because it's a language that we don't speak But Jesus is straight up cussing like a drunken sailor here in this passage. When he says, you fool, when he says this word raka, right, it would have got edited out of most sermons. It it, it would get a bleep from the censors for sure. It's a term of extreme contempt for your fellow image bearers. So the movement, as Jesus shows us here, the movement from anger to insult to raka, right, can be mapped just like this. First, I'm angry with you in response to like a hurt, right? You've done me wrong, so I'm angry at you. Next, I begin to question your character with an insult. You fool, raka. Then I begin to to, to question your worth as a person. As anger degrades into contempt, which it does if we let it stew in this sinfulness, the personhood of another image bearer is then devalued. Devalued to the point to where you say, No longer are you just a fool or raka. You don't deserve to exist. Dallas Willard uh, notes it this way about contempt. Contempt is a kind of studied degradation of another, and it is also more pervasive in life than anger. It is never justifiable or good. In contempt, I don't care if you are hurt or not, or at least so I say. So see the delineation between anger and contempt here? Um, You are not worth consideration one way or another. We can be angry at someone without denying their worth, but contempt makes it easier for us to hurt them or see them further degraded. The intent and effect of contempt is always to exclude someone, push them away, leave them isolated. I would add, make them non existent. People who murder have embraced contempt to the point that they believe another image bearer to be so worthless as to not deserve to live. That's a huge jump from just being angry at someone, right? People who embrace contempt, like I'm angry at people a lot, and I have murdered anybody, so you can see how like it just devolves quickly, right? People who embrace that thought, they've this thought of contempt, they've indulged anger to the point that they believe that whatever happened to them, whatever their injury that happened to them, it merits a a response that is even a greater injury to the person that injured them, right? People who indulge anger have made a conscious decision of the will to, to nurture a negative emotion into this like very viable seedling of contempt. And once contempt takes its root, it is a sea which over time ends in disaster if left unchecked. It's important to note that Jesus is not adding to the law here. Not at all, right? He's teaching in both of these commands that we're looking at today that if a person, like when it comes to murder, that if a person dealt with anger quickly and rightly, there would be no need for this sixth word at all. He's saying that the impulse to murder is what happens when anger is left unresolved and unrepentant. He's saying you better check yourself before you wreck yourself and a bunch of other people. From out of control, parents at soccer games, which I see often, to crazy incidents of road rage, right? We see evidence all around us. Humans regularly act angry over things that aren't that serious. We indulge and we overexpress it routinely. Our exaggerated responses, they begin to reveal that we didn't simply just like become angry overnight, like in an instant, like that we carry around with us. Some of us just carry around like a supply of pent-up anger at all times. Unfortunately... The world has figured out how to profit from our anger, right? They exploit it at every turn. Cable news networks fuel moral indignation over the culture wars. Social media platforms reward outrage with likes and clicks. Our politicians choose a side and stoke the fires of division and contempt. And the problem is, contempt directed at an image bearer breeds all kinds of violence. It masquerades as righteous anger, but it's really just self-serving, self-elevating. It, it, it may make a point. Our anger may make a point. Our contempt may make a point, but it always has a victim, right? So let's shift our focus now to the seventh command. We're going to see this picture together and how this is painted. Now, the seventh command, it's going to be challenging. There's things embedded in here that are that the culture that we live in completely stands against, right? Remember what God is saying, what God is doing. Remember the whole story, the whole narrative. God is speaking now to a people whose soul identity, culture, ethics, morals, values has been shaped by the empire of Egypt. And Yahweh has now freed them rescued them from oppression, and is now forming this new family for himself, this new covenant community. And he's setting the ethics and the morals and the values and the culture of his kingdom here on earth. And so we got to dig into things that, that fly against the culture of this world in the seventh command, right? But the seventh command, just like the sixth right? It has this equally as expansive application, right? And as we're going to see, it reveals even a deeper obedience to what Christ calls us to, one that goes beyond simply not sleeping with someone we're not married to. It forces us to ask what our treatment of someone who bears the image of God indicates about our hearts, right? So God takes the marriage covenant serious, Genesis 2.24 describes marriage as the joining together of a man and a woman into one flesh. It's It's a word picture to illustrate both the permanence and the interconnectedness of the marriage relationship. What's God's purpose for it? To glorify Him, to find pleasure, and to to be fruitful and multiply, right? So so this this idea of marriage is is the fulfillment of God's mission of being fruitful and multiplying, which Hub City, y'all take real serious. Like, you're really good at it, right? Like, we just, there's so, like, some of you have had two COVID babies, which is crazy, right? So it's been two years, and you've had two COVID babies, right? So... So we need to see this we need to dig into this right so the seventh word here it does at the surface and it's important it does forbid adultery right and it, it forbids it as this like blatant dismantling of what God has joined together so scripture says a lot about adultery in, in the Old Testament we, we learned that that it's punishable by death in the New Testament we discover that it's a clear grounds to, to end, like to, to, to divorce, right? It's, it becomes this consistent metaphor throughout the scripture used by God to describe his people's unfaithfulness to him. He calls them adulterers. So the seventh word tells us then to take marriage as seriously as God does. The word for adultery means this, to corrupt or debase or to make impure, right? So you can see when that act happens in the context of a covenant commitment of marriage, how it's not just like breaking that single like instant, like that single marriage that exists. It's actually debasing, corrupting, or making impure God's whole design for marriage. Unfaithfulness in marriage corrupts the purity of the covenant, right? And so because sin yields all the time collateral damage, right? Adultery also corrupts and debases the stability of the family unit and the community. Marital dysfunction and sin causes a ripple effect. It does more harm, far more harm to, to, to people than just the adulterer. So the seventh word shows us how to love one another through healthy marriages. Just as the command against murder asks us to be life protectors, the command against adultery asks us to be life honorers. You'll see what I mean here in a second. So, as we saw with the sixth word, that anger and contempt created this, like, ecosystem for, like, murder by devaluing other image bearers, adultery is addressed after murder instead of before because it also is an outward sinful act that begins with the devaluing of another image bearer. Anger and contempt toward a spouse create the ecosystem for adultery by devaluing both the spouse and the marriage covenant. It creates this space where our thoughts turn to this. You know, I thought, like when I was standing at that altar and the words that I said and the promises that I made, like I I, I, I thought I meant them. I thought you were worthy of my love and my commitment. I see now that you are not as valuable as I had once thought. You are a disappointment. You stir raka in my throat. I will direct and divert my attention and affection and desire elsewhere despite having made an eternal commitment to you, right? And so the very nature of our attention will not be, right, as despite what every rom-com tells us, it will not be a desperate romantic search for your soulmate, right? It will instead be a search for the indulgence of a particular expression of contempt, one that underlies and compels the act of adultery. Jesus addresses it once again in the Sermon on the Mount. He calls it this. He calls it lust. And and we don't just, like, what Jesus wants us to see is, like, we don't just stumble into adultery. It's not committed by someone that's, like, swept away by their passions. It will be committed it's willed, it's perpetrated, right? And so, just like he did with murder, Jesus points us to the root sin of adultery in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 27 and 28. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So, so Jesus identifies like the root cause. He says it's this this thing this this thing of lust, right? And because of that, the seventh command speaks to more than just married people. Like if you heard marriage and you're like I'm not married, so I'm checking out of the conversation. I'm I'm afraid to say that lust can hit you also, right? Because at the end of the day, we're all tempted by it. And and just Just like we avoid murdering people by dealing with the temptation to feed our anger which turns into contempt, we avoid the sin of adultery if we deal with the temptation of lust which leads to contempt and devaluing image bearers. And so just like anger is marketed to us and sold to us on the regular, lust is also monetized and weaponized. It has been culturally normalized and appropriated for profit. It saturates our media peddling this like bent version of human flourishing that is based and distorted and debased the good gift of sex and sexuality it reduces our fellow image bearers to a source of sexual gratification it commoditizes what god meant for intimacy and flourishing it's the result of seeing everyone as just their utility so if the sixth command prohibited regarding our neighbor as expendable, the seventh command prohibits us regarding our neighbor as consumable. Let's lust, it takes so many different forms, right? The specific form that lust takes um, here in this passage, John addresses in 1 John 2:16, and he says, "For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eye, um, in other versions, will say the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but of this world. So John says that there. He says lust of the eye. He is referring, and Jesus is referring to, like, what we see. Like, what we see, and when it turns from something, it's just acknowledging God's good gift of creation to something that we, like, lust after. That's what Jesus is addressing here, right? And that story, when you think about, like, seeing something, wanting it, lusting after it, right, that story is once again as old as the garden right? It's Adam and Eve obsessing over the fruit from the forbidden tree. It's physically seeing it, desiring it, and then consuming it. What Jesus identifies as the root of adultery is the very thing that lies at the root of every adulterated act. The lust of the eye is this disordered desire, one that chooses to fix its obsession, desire, and attention in its clutches, on the things that God declared not good. It distorts and devalues God's intention, and it produces these disordered desires in us. How you guys doing? You guys okay with this? All right, we're, we're, we're going deep here, right? And when you jump into and evaluate and process, like where are my desires disordered, right? Um, you recognize this. Where they are, it always... It always ends up in those parts of your life also being disordered. So, so this sexual desire inside the, the covenant of marriage is an expression, like as God declares it, of mutual love. It's a rightly ordered desire. Sexual desire outside of the covenant commitment is an expression of lust. Listen, I'm going to say this. If you guys think that you're uncomfortable with this conversation, my 13-year-old son's in the room, so just it's, we're, you're doing okay, right? I'm doing far worse than you guys are. We have to see this as like a disordered desire, right? So, so, but God gives us this beautiful act, right? And so we have to also say then, then outside of the context of covenant commitment, sex outside of marriage is often just about consumption. It's, it's this temptation, right, that breeds in us to avoid vulnerability, to avoid commitment, to avoid covenant. And so when the lust of our eyes is when it levels its gaze on fellow image bearers, whether that's sexual or anything else, we're viewing that person as someone who deserves or even wants to be consumed. Like as you sit there right now, do you feel that you are made in the precious image of God to merely be consumed, right? No, but, but we're not called, right, because... We're not called to consume those that we love. We are called to treasure, protect, love, and serve them and elevate them as fellow image bearers, not consume them. So the root sin of adultery chooses a person it is willing to treat with contempt So lust so devalues the object of its aim that the act of adultery becomes like the next logical step. That's how you map that out. And just like he did with murder and anger, Jesus shows how one results from another. And he wants to rip its roots out of us. Remember last week we said a lot of what the Ten Commandments are are an invitation to have Egypt extricated from our hearts to rip out anything from this false culture that would cause us to worship a false god in a false way that would give us a false identity and so Jesus is saying I want to strip that out of you but I think there's this challenging thing when we approach like all of this conversation right and I think that we all too often approach it this way hey listen like if I could do my best to, like, bring it under control. Like, when you think about those besetting things in your life, maybe it's some of these. And you're like, if I could just bring it, if I could just tame it. But that's not how Jesus talks about it here, right? Jesus doesn't want us to tame contempt. He wants it, us to kill it, right? He wants it to come to death in our life. Look at how Paul talks about sin and contempt and lust. In Colossians 3.5, he says this, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly, what is Egypt in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry, right? So put it to death. I think the enemy has succeeded in convincing us that lust is just something to be managed instead of slain. God intends for us to strike it down. How? Well, after Jesus identifies lust as the root cause of adultery, he says this very very dramatic statement. It's like, whoa, Jesus, calm down here, right? Matthew five twenty nine to 30. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better for you, or for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Very dramatic, right? And if, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body is going to hell. So man, if there is any passage of scripture that challenges our defense of like a literal interpretation, it's this one, right? Because if we took it more serious, man, there'd be a lot of left-handed people with eye patches in here, right? Like we just kind of go like, yeah, like the market on eye patches would be st- stunning right now. So it's challenging for it because is Jesus actually like suggesting that the solution to lust is to start hacking off our body parts? right? As if only the conquering of lust was like this simple as like getting out the cleaver and just going all like Jason Voorhees on ourselves, right? Even if we could survive that, the problem that Jesus addresses is like we can't live without our hearts. And that's so often where this dwells. It manifests itself out here, but it dwells in our hearts, right? And the rest of our bodies, as Jesus talks about, they just chase after what our heart truly wants. We need something far sharper and more accurate than any blade forged by any human hands to cut this out of us, even if that blade was forged in the fire of Mount Doom. That was just for you, buddy, right? We need something that's going to reveal and cut out of our hearts any disordered desires. Fortunately, we have one, We have the Word of God, which is living and active, dividing our thoughts and our intentions from each other, getting rid of those disordered desires. I love how the psalmist puts it in Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart, right? So that's a bit circular. So give yourself over. Give your heart to Yahweh. And in doing that, He will put rightly ordered desires in your heart and then you will love him more and then the more rightly so it's just this circular thing the more that you delight yourself in the lord the more that he's going to give you the desires of your heart and what your heart truly desires is ultimately yahweh right so we as we confess and as we repent god puts to death our disordered desires he gives us rightly ordered ones desires that seek to worship honor and represent god so that antidote to the lust of the eyes is not actually gouging out your eyes, but it's seeing as God sees. So we can see our fellow image bearers, our fellow humans like God sees them, his good creation that bear his image. So we don't look at our neighbor with lust, which robs their dignity. We see them as God sees them, which is to restore dignity to them. It's Jesus as he looked upon those like the woman with the jar of alabaster and she had only been seen with lust and consumption her whole life. But Jesus gave back to her what others had taken, her full humanity. Do you see how it's not enough to just not commit adultery, not lust Because the absence of what's wrong doesn't always produce the presence of what's right. So, what should we do, right? We should restore dignity to those who have suffered at the hands of a culture that robs them of it at every opportunity. We should see the image of God in them and elevate that in them. We fight against the cultural message that humans are objects to be exploited or consumed, and just like murder, when we deflect our connection to its victims by asking am I my brother's keeper, right? When we ask that question, the blood-bought children of God know the answer to our own question. Because Christ, our brother, has answered it fully and finally with his yes. He became the object of our anger and our contempt, denigrated and devalued, stripped of his dignity, endured the anger and contempt of his creation in his broken flesh and spilled blood. He felt the sting of the lust of his creation's eyes as they sought to consume his very life. Cain the murderer was not the Messiah. Christ the murdered is the Messiah because he is the image of the invisible God. Those who hated God dealt violently with that image. Those that sought autonomy with their lust for independence turned their back on their creator. We are dearly loved children of God because of Christ's life-giving act In him was life. So, who, if they're in Christ, can be an instrument of death? He lived perfectly. He perfectly lived out the law. He did not lust. So, if you're in Christ, how can you be unfaithful? Because we are accepted into the beloved. We will not be content to simply be not murderers or not contemptuous or not angry or not adulterers or not consumers. We will not merely refrain from taking life. We will run toward giving it. We won't merely refrain from adultery. We will seek to faithfully live out our covenant promise to elevate image bearers, not consume them. So church, let's be life protectors and esteem givers and peace Makers let's seek justice in a culture that believes entire categories of image bearers are worthy of our contempt or Consumption in a world defined by dividing image bearers. We have to seek and live out Shalom church when we live this out as our mandate Motivated to honor and elevate worship God and our fellow image bearers our sphere of influence becomes an outpost to the kingdom of heaven on earth they become these micro expressions, rehearsing the glorious new Jerusalem that will come. A new city filled with a people made new. The old has passed away, been laid to rest, been crucified with Christ. A city where anger, lust, and contempt are no more. When we live lives of obedience to these commands and we seek to fulfill them in our communities in our city in our neighborhoods in our relationships we affirm our allegiance to the kingdom and its king that is to come and we begin to see heaven on earth as it should be it's a big challenge church let's respond now to yahweh and let's give him our worship. We're going to do that in a few ways. Austin's going to come back up. We're going to, we're going to sing these beautiful songs of worship and praise to our good king. Listen, like, you're not performing for each other here. You're not singing worship songs to each other. We're singing to our good and glorious God. We're going to give you some moments. You can you can pray. You can communicate with God. We would ask that if Hub City's your home, you would give and give worshipfully. You can do that in a few ways. we got a box over there. You can Put what you're going to give in there. You can give online today. Um, Again, if Hub City is is your home, we ask that you give and give worshipfully and joyfully. And finally, we get to go um, to the table where we hear Jesus' cry, his deep invitation of life. And we go to that table and we partake in his life by sharing in his broken body, by sharing in his spilled blood for us. And we go and we receive his gracious gift of life to us as we remember and acknowledge. So we go in grace to the table, receiving God's good gift. Let me pray and let's respond. Father, we thank you for...